we're coming to the end of this chapter in which Paul is answering a question that basically has been sounded before him twice. If you're teaching about grace and that all we need to be saved is grace, then why don't we just sin that, that more grace might abound? Why don't we keep on sinning? It's asked in verse 1, or it's asked again in verse 15. Uh, you might remember that Paul is writing in such a way that he's writing like he's writing a diatribe. So he's addressing different people in like a debate, an imaginary debate. He's writing to the Christians in Rome, but he's also presenting them the truths through this diatribe, this engagement of the gospel, but those who might not be willing to receive it and are protesting against things that are introduced to them as their gospel is brought before them. And so he turns to speak to the pagan. He turns to speak to the pagan moralist. He turns to speak to the Jewish religionist, Judaizer. And he also turns and speaks to the brothers and sisters that he's writing to. We see some of that in this passage here. Now we're in verse 19 as Paul is answering this question. And Paul is, by the way, spoke of this idea that we are not to be slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. And the first answer to this question, I told you last week, what Paul did was he talked about a work that God had done in our life, regenerating us, in which he put to death our old man and he gave us new life in Christ. He says, we don't continue going on sinning because we've been born again. We've been transformed. And the old man that followed after that pursuit is dead. And a new man has come to life in us. And so he answers the question first by saying, this is what God has done for us. The second time he answers the question, he refers more to what we have done for God. We have turned our life over to him. We have surrendered to him. We have yielded ourselves up to him as slaves to righteousness. And so having made that decision and laid our lives down in that way, we're not going back. That's the basic idea he puts before us in answer to the question when it's asked the second time. Now, let me read to you Romans 6, verses 19 through 23. Paul writes, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end to everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. May God add a blessing to his word. The Lord Jesus deployed a number of various metaphors or analogies in describing the Christian life. And through these illustrative depictions, he was setting a tone of expectation and appreciation for what it was that he was going to offer those who followed him. So you know, on one occasion, he compares the Christian life to a feast, not just any kind of feast, but a celebratory wedding feast. And not even just any kind of wedding feast, but to a royal wedding feast. And he said, now that's the Christian life. It's this great, wonderful, celebratory feast that we enjoy with him. And then on another occasion, he will speak of the life of following him like that life of sheep who are under the care of a tender and loving and guiding and protecting good shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And then on another occasion, he compares our life with him to that of being branches that are connected into the vitality of the fruit-producing vine. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. He spoke of the Christian life and the imagery of sick and broken people who 
come to a great physician who heals them and makes them whole and grants them and brings them into life. Again, it's just another wonderful picture. He gives us the picture of where stones that are built upon him as the chief cornerstone that rises up into a great temple in which God is worshipped and glorified and God makes his presence known. These are wonderful analogies that exalt us and lift up our minds to a sense of the preciousness and dearness and wonder of the life that we have in the Lord Jesus as we follow him. Maybe in light of these analogies that are so powerful and compelling that Paul acknowledges the limitation of the analogy that he's just used of the Christian life in responding to a certain question that's been asked to him. He's actually somewhat apologetic of it. He says, I speak in human terms. I'm giving an analogy that is not as encouraging and uplifting. It certainly doesn't have the same kind of poetic flair. It certainly isn't something that lifts and exalts your heart when you consider it. I'm using the analogy of being a slave, being a slave to righteousness. So I'm bringing this down to a most common level. I'm speaking to you in the most human terms because this is something that you need to hear. I know it's not uplifting. I know it's not necessarily inspiring. But listen, it's inspired. Paul is speaking to us, being led by the Holy Spirit. And Paul explains that it is necessary for him to speak in this blunt and blatant fashion in order to address something that resides in the hearts of those that he's writing to. And if it's important for Paul to have said this to those he was writing to in Rome, important that this analogy be applied to our lives as well. There's a reason why this analogy of being slaves is important. The question is why? Well, it's because of this, Paul says. It's because of the weakness of your flesh. Some of your translations will say it's because of the natural limitations or your human limitations, what they'll say. The answer is there, but the word there is flesh. It's sarks. It's a word that we spoke about a couple weeks ago. Throughout chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 8, Paul will use different terms to reference our physical bodies. He'll use the term soma for our bodies. He'll use a term for our members or the various extremities of our bodies, our hands and our feet and our tongues. Those are our members of our body. And then he'll speak of the substance in which our bodies and our members are constructed, and that's our flesh. In each one of these cases, when he speaks of the body, when he speaks of the members, when he speaks of the flesh... It's connected to this idea that they are prey to sinful impulses. They are prey to sinful proclivities. And so he is speaking in order to guide us as individuals who are fallen Christ, who have given new spirits, to take dominion, you might say, over our physical bodies. And also to address the temptations and the challenge that come to us through our physical bodies. And so he says here, I speak to you because of the, not your natural limitations, not your human limitations. I speak to you, and this is the word, this is actually the most faithful expression of just what the word in Greek means here, the weakness that is found in your flesh. The essence of that weakness is such that I need to speak to you in this lowly, startling analogy for the Christian life because I need to address that weakness. It needs to be confronted. It needs to be corrected. So what is that weakness? What's the weakness in the flesh that he's confronting? We have to draw this to some extent from the very words that he says here. But I think the overriding consideration at issue here that's being 
Paul, by the Holy Spirit, is being guided to address when he gives this analogy is, and you might put this as it, this is the weakness of the flesh. It is a proneness towards independence from God. The weakness of the flesh is a proneness towards independence from God. Paul is addressing this independent tilt away from God. Paul must overcome this, this point of resistance to the truth that rises up in our flesh, a point which our weak, sin-prone flesh pushes us, which is to push us away from God. The author of Hebrews gives this warning to those he writes in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews 3.12, he says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. There is this tendency or this proneness to distance ourselves from God, and we can clothe it in religious behavior. We can come offering up all kinds of righteous professions. We can embrace even some plan and strategy for moral living, and yet at the same time, when we do that on the outside and the inside, our hearts, our flesh is driving us away from God. So Isaiah says this in Isaiah 29, verse 13. He says, you draw near to me with your mouths, and with your lips you honor me, but your hearts are far from me, and your fear towards me is taught merely by the precepts of men. Now, you're doing all these outward forms, and you're saying all these outward things, but your heart, your fear is artificial, and your heart is far from me. It's the proneness of the heart, the human heart, to distance itself from God and to move away from God, or it's the proneness, I might say, of the flesh. There are legitimate doubts and questions that we have at times in our lives. There are legitimate doubts and questions that even the unbeliever has about what is true and what is right and what is good. But very often they reflect some tilt of sinful disposition in the flesh, in the nature of human beings that desires independence from God. We'll see this independent attitude expressed as we look further in our passage. But first, let's just see that this is what Paul is addressing. And let's actually see that it's addressed in the very protest that he's trying to answer. Look, at if the law is set aside, they understand what Paul is teaching is you can't be made righteous by following all these laws and all these rules. The only way you can be righteous is by a gracious gift that God gives you, providing righteousness through His Son, Jesus Christ. He's the one who's died in your place for your sins. He's bore the punishment for your sins. He's the one who's lived the perfectly righteous life, and you will never attain it by following the law. You just have to simply believe and trust in Him and receive by grace the gift that He's giving you. And the protest that comes is a protest, well then, if we're not saved by, or if we're not made righteous by the law, and if the law is put aside, then why don't we just keep on sinning that grace may abound? Paul, you're actually promoting an idea that's promoting more immorality. You're promoting lawlessness. You're untethering people from any incentive to be moral at all. And so these people that are making the protest are positioning themselves as paragons of righteousness. They're positioning themselves as the ones who are the advocates for good, strong, moral living. And maybe they have been. Maybe they've been the ones in their society that have tried to hold up the best standard and they're incensed and bothered by the fact that Paul is suggesting that all that they're doing is of no great value to God and hasn't accomplished any righteousness for them. And so here are these individuals that are espousing and, and seem to be putting themselves in the position of holding the need to be moral and right and good and to have a standard that everybody lives by. Paul is basically saying that this moralistic attitude, this legalistic attitude, and by the way, it's not individuals, it's not just people who are very circumspect and trying to live moral lives that make this protest. There are people who live 
lives that are almost abandoned of any morality whatsoever, but put them in a corner and all of a sudden they'll protest of the one or two little trinkets of good things they do, that that has to be the thing and you're going to set the world on fire if you don't appeal to the fact that people need to be good in order to be saved and it doesn't matter. They'll come back to that moral argument and here's what Paul's saying. This moralistic argument, this legalistic attitude that thinks that we can gain our own right standing and approval from God by our actions is motivated by the fleshiness that wants some form of independence from God, that departs from God. The heart that desires to hold God at a distance would prefer to have a contractual relationship with Him where a person can earn approval or acceptance from God, a situation where God owes them something as payment for some good deed or some behavior that they've done. Grace doesn't work like that. It's something that's given without any merit whatsoever. There is no contract involved in it. I do this, you give me that. I do that, you give me this. I do these good works, you owe me these things. And you do that, you follow that, you have some modicum of your own contribution, your own self-esteem, your own self-worth. You can put that in your pocket and keep it for yourself. And you can say God owes something to me. It's contractual, but if God comes to you in your utter brokenness, and your complete deserving of unending judgment, and He comes and rescues you when you have absolutely no power whatsoever to rescue yourself, and He gives to you what you do not deserve in any way freely and pours it out upon you, then what that does is it gives birth to a gratitude that binds you to the one who's loved you in such a way that He bore your sins and He took all your brokenness and gave you what you didn't deserve. And there's Nothing of yourself that you can put in your pocket and say is yours. There's no point at which you claim independence from Him. You become owned by the one who's done all that to you. You become bound to Him in such a way. You say, how can I help but love Him when He loved me so? And you're knit to Him in this, this deep, profound commitment because He's rescued you and He's saved you and He's come and exchanged His life for you and He's freely given you His righteousness in the place of your unrighteousness. Even your good works were just filthy rags and he put it all aside and washed you and cleansed you. And When that happens, everything goes into his hands. All of you goes into his hands, his saving hands. And there's no independent self left. God has everything. He holds everything because of his grace and mercy. And the flesh doesn't like that. It resists that. The posture of the flesh is prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Let me earn something from you instead that I can claim to my own merits and then I can expect you to bless me. Paul sees the independent attitude in the question that's being asked of him. He recognizes the weakness of the flesh that's rising up in the protest that is being made by these supposedly moralistic individuals against a truth that would claim a person's heart and soul and mind and he speaks with an analogy of the Christian life that will challenge this attitude of the flesh. He basically says, you're going to have to become a slave of God. You're going to have to enslave yourself to His righteousness. If you don't, you're just a slave of sin. And you're enslaved and you will be enslaved to it all the way into death. Enslave yourself to Him. Now here's an application for us. We have to learn how to listen to the doubts that people have and the expressions of unbelief that they share, even the doubts and unbelief that rise up in our own hearts. We can't entirely ignore them or deny them, but 
pay attention to them because oftentimes you'll see rooted at it is a protest of the claim of the gospel upon a person's life. Rooted at the base of it is this insinuated desire to have God explain himself in such a way that you can maintain a distance from him. Just as long as we have an understanding God. Right? And then you maintain the sense of your own distance. And God is calling us into a life of trust and faith in which we, we abandon ourselves to him completely. And we yield ourselves completely to him. And he has complete control. So the analogy is that of slavery. And the choice is between one of two slaveries. The slavery to sin or the slavery to righteousness. And an individual has to, in a sense, decide. He has to decide which slavery he will lay himself to. But he needs to know that if he seeks independence from God, if he pulls away from God, he's just pulling, his flesh is just pulling him towards the bondage and slavery of sin and death. Now let's look at the last part of verse 19. We've just considered briefly the first part of verse 19. Here's what we read. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So the first thing that Paul would have us consider is the future that lies before both of these slaveries or what flows out of being brought under both of these different slaveries. And here's the point. Either one of these enslavements, and whether he's enslaved to sin or enslaved to righteousness, gains a certain kind of momentum in an individual's life. Each one of them deepens as you progress into them. You seek to maintain your independence from God and you will go deeper and deeper into your bondage to sin. It will guide you into greater and greater impurity and greater and greater lawlessness. That's what he's saying here. Remember, I just said that Paul has heard this independent spirit in those who are protesting somewhat the immoral idea that we're saved by grace. Well, that's not very moral. That puts the law aside. That keeps us from doing the right thing. Paul's actually saying, oh, no, listen, you go with that logic. You follow that. It's being motivated by your desire to be independent of God. And here's what's going to happen. You're just going to become increasingly unclean. And actually, you're the one who's going to become increasingly lawless. That's what he sees in it. How did Paul get that insight? Maybe Paul got it because of what the Lord Jesus taught. You'll remember that the Lord Jesus confronted the Pharisees. You'll find it in Matthew chapter 23. And there's this tremendous repudiation that he gives to the Pharisees and the scribes. And the scribes were all those who wrote and recorded all the law and made sure that everybody was following the law. And the Pharisees, the one who debated about the law, debated about just the right measure of how to fulfill the law, sought to answer it and fulfill it in such a way that everybody would look at them and marvel at how moral they were in following the law. And the Lord Jesus rebukes them. And he rebukes these individuals who appear to be such moral individuals and he rebukes them for their utter defilement that's inside of them in their lives. Let me read to you chapter 23 of Matthew. Let me just read to you verses 27 and 28. You want to actually get a crisp view of Christ at his sharpest critique of an individual. Read this whole chapter. It's rather stunning. He pronounces a series of woes, and here's one of his woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now remember, these are the legalists. For you are whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. You're defiled, just like I said. Just like I said, listen, if you're going to depart and you're going to the slavery, you're just going to go into more and more uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, 
but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That's what's behind it all. You're not driving yourself closer to God. You're not following His precepts. You're not yielding to it. You've got these outward precepts that you follow, but your heart is governed by lawlessness and defilement, and it's increasing in your life as you go along. You're not getting better. You're getting worse. You're becoming more and more corrupt. Inside, you're becoming more and more corrupt. That's Jesus' assessment. Paul says that's what's going on. I would just kind of give you a little bit of an idea here. You find some group of individuals or some cult or some sect that lays all kinds of weight on performance and moral performance and following laws and how you're to appear and how you're to dress and the things you're supposed to do and say. And you look under the surface of the individuals who become the strong advocates for their lives and you'll find underneath the surface, scratch down and see what they're thinking about and what's toiling around and spinning around their hearts. And it's just a whirlpool of uncleanness and lawlessness and defilement. It's not surprising you'll find many of these people in their own homes are bound into all kinds of perverse behaviors and addictions. And on the outside, they look pure. Their lives are raging with passions that are inordinate and inappropriate. Paul is addressing the individual, say, that's what God sees under your heart. That's what sees in all your righteousness. All your righteousness is indeed like filthy rags. The more you double down it, the filthier it gets. That's what he's confronting. Here's the future. You move away from God. You seek to be free of him. And you'll be caught up in an ever-growing defilement of life, even if you try to move away from being moral, and by being good and following all kinds of rules. You'll be caught up in an ever-growing defilement of life. But turn to him. Take what he freely gives you through his son, Jesus Christ. Yield yourself to him fully and fall under the bondage of grace and mercy and his love. You'll begin to walk out from your life a life that, it says, leads to sanctification. That is, leads to increasing holiness. That is, you become more and more Christ-like, more and more like our Lord Jesus. Let's look at verses 20 and 22. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its sin is eternal life. And so here's the second thing we'll consider. The first one was consider what flows out of these two slaveries or what the future is of these two slaveries. The next one is consider the freedoms of both of these slaveries. Each one of them offers some form of freedom. One of them makes you free from everything but righteousness or free to everything, and the only thing you're free from is righteousness. You might remember the sense of freedom that came upon you. I remember this. You know, Saturdays was the day you had to get all your chores done. When you finally got your chores done, and some days it took a long time, other days it didn't, and you walked out the door to go to your friend's house to play, there was a sense of being out of your chains, you know, being unbounded. You were free, and maybe some of that began to continue to go with you when you became a teenager. And then as you walked out of the home to go out and be with your friends and maybe do things that were inappropriate or when you were released to go away for a weekend with your friend or spend the night with your friend, there was this same sense of independence, of being out from underneath the governance of your parents. And not, now, young people have to learn how to live that life because eventually they're going to be going out from their homes. But something begins to tick within us that sees that independence as this positive thing because now it's an opportunity for us to express ourselves and do the things we really want to do or the things our parents wouldn't let us do or you name it. To put off those inhibitions and 
I grew up in the 70s. I grew up with a generation that was around me that was putting off those inhibitions of their parents in the past and trying to exalt in the freedom that they had as a result. Yet what happens when you break free from all those things? Initially, when you break free of those constraints that are put upon you and moral restrictions in order that you can pursue with a sense of liberation those things that might normally have been inhibitions for you. You get past those points. You're no longer inhibited from pursuing your own pleasures and your own passions. It can be exhilarating for a moment. It can be exciting for a moment. But here's what happens. Ultimately, the only thing that you'll be free of in that exercise is righteousness. You'll go out and do those things and have your fun and do those things, but you'll discover when the dust settles, the only thing that you were free of was righteousness. Now, that's not a small thing. That's a really big thing because when you were born and when God made you, he put an impulse in you because you were made in his image. And you know what that impulse was? To be right. When we were little boys and little girls growing up, the thing that was ticking within us is we wanted to be good little boys and good little girls. We dreamt of doing heroic and wonderful things. We had an impulse to please and it was this divine constructed element of what God made us for. God made us for righteousness. And every person still, even the person who's clinging to his moral laws, is trying to, in his own power, become righteous. But it's an instinct within him. But if he doesn't yield himself to God and doesn't come to faith in Jesus Christ and he departs from God because he just wants to do it his own way, the only thing he'll be separated from is the very thing he deep down inside. He was made to desire and the one thing that will make him and give him purpose as a human being, which is to be righteous, to be right. That's what we were made for. And when you choose to separate from your God and free yourself up from your own inhibitions and the restrictions of your parents or your home or the moral constructs of your society so that you can realize yourself, you'll discover. You'll be free to do a lot of things. But you won't be free to accomplish and do and realize the one thing that you were made for and the one thing that makes you truly human, made in the image of God. It's to be right, to be righteous. And so your life will become a complicated life and that void, you'll just be more and more empty. You've got a, a generation now that have taken all these new desires and they've now incorporated an idea that I'm just being true to myself. I'm just pursuing my essential identity and yet their identity is wrapped around whatever impulse and whatever desire they want to activate themselves on and they want to be free to pursue without anybody stopping them or restraining them in any way and what they become is a hollow shell emptied out of the very thing they were made for to be right with God. It's filled with things that will never satisfy. They're free from the one thing, the one thing that you really want to be bound to. The one thing that you want to have inexorably woven into your life, holding and containing you so that your life doesn't just break apart into a thousand pieces. Righteousness. The life of God dwelling and abiding within us, making us right before Him. But when you come to Him and you yield to Him and you bow before Him and you find His cleansing and His washing and He lives in you, and He takes hold of you and He binds you together in a wholeness that you can know in no other way, the wholeness of His righteousness and you're right before Him. So you're free from all the things that take you away from Him. You're free from sin. You're free from these echoes that seek you and tell you to find your life and your identity and things apart from God. And you're free to embrace the thing that brings you fulfillment and fullness. A relationship with you were made for him. A relationship with him. Being before him 
at ease in your own skin, being right within the world that he made for you to live in, abide in, having a life that's right, having a life that's whole. So there's two different freedoms here. One is a freedom from righteousness, a freedom, and the other one is a freedom from all the things that break your life apart, break your life apart. See here as well, there's fruit from both of these slaveries. This is, happens to each child that grows up in a home. There's a point at which we do, in a sense, break free from our parents. We read that song, we sang the song, I've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. There was a time in my life in which I had to decide whether my following of the Lord Jesus was merely a mimicking of what my parents had modeled for me, and I was just following the trail that they laid before me, looking to them, being guided by them alone, or whether actually there was going to be a transition point in which I put my eyes on Jesus alone and followed him. And there was an independence from them in that moment. But it wasn't an independence of just being unguided, of stopping to follow. But I had to decide whether I was going to follow him. But at that same moment, there was another decision. I won't go that way. I won't follow him. I won't follow them. I won't follow him. I'll live my own life. I'll find out truth for myself. I'll make my own decisions. I'll make my own mistakes. I'll learn my way. I'll do my thing. There's this exhilarating moment for a young man or a young woman when that moment comes before them. That moment comes before them. Choose wisely. Choose wisely. One form of independence is false. And it will bind you in sin and ruin and it will produce in your life an ongoing degradation. And you may actually find yourself to be a successful individual. And you may be even find yourself to, to be more consistent in your behavior, you think, than what your parents were. You did it your way. But inside, your life is just going to become a greater and greater pool of defilement and lawlessness. And you will have moved further and further away from being right with God your life will just begin to disintegrate further and further away from him. Or you say, no, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to lay my life down before him. I'm going to be surrendered to him. He's going to take control of my life. I'm going to live under the grace and the cleansing and the forgiveness that he gives me. I'm going to be bound to him in service. I want to be owned by him in every way. I want to glorify him and please him and serve him. And This is my bond. I have decided to follow Jesus. The world behind me, the cross before me. Though no one join me, still I will follow. I'll follow him. He puts us right with himself by his own grace and his own mercy. He brings us into a state of completeness that we can't realize any other way. The decision is before us actually in a sense all the time. Choose rightly. Let's bow our heads. And for the, for the wrong choice, and for the will that determined to go from you, and walk out from your presence. We thank you, God, that you don't stop pursuing me and drawing me. But, oh, God, what accumulates are things that one day they shall deeply be ashamed of. And fruit will accumulate that's rotten and worm-infested and of no benefit and just leads to death in their life and to those that they had influence upon. God, how we thank you that through all that you pursue us, you pursued us until you grabbed hold of us and your love captured us and you brought us in surrender to you in faith 
yield and say, oh, I'm going to obey this Savior who's given his life. Turn from ourselves and we turn to you. Oh, God, we thank you for that day and that hour and we rejoice. We pray for our young people that each one of them might come to that moment of determination as well to yield before you in utter and complete surrender. God, for that we give you glory now. And we ask now you bless us as we come before this table. We remind ourselves in it of what you opened up for us in that hour of surrender. Life. Yourself. To partake of you. Your blood to cleanse us. Your body to come quicken us and live within us and empower us and give us purpose, wholeness, rightness and fitness through our Savior Jesus Christ. We praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.